Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Okay, so uh, let's jump right into uh, things for uh, today. We're going to look at the text. I'm going to go ahead and read that. Um, we'll we'll kind of throw you for a loop. We Stand with me as we read the word. We're going to be in Romans 8. Verses 12 through 18. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are are God... let me see if I can read. Led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoptions as son, by whom you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present times are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be, that is to be revealed to us. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Father, we pray that you would do work through your word today. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Let us see the beauty of Romans 8, just even as we prayed uh, earlier this morning. Lord, I pray that our hearts would worship and be encouraged uh, with the beautiful blessings that are found in this text. Draw our hearts to you. Uh, Let us understand the beauty that is in this. Draw it out of us, God. We pray that in your name. Holy Spirit, draw near. We, We need you. We need your work in our hearts. Amen. Okay, uh, so we are excited to be in Romans 8, right? So when you take on Romans, there's always this looking for the horizon for when you get to this chapter, because it's one of the coolest chapters in the Bible, filled with amazing truth, as it lays out for us the blessings of salvation kind of over and over and over, one after another. This chapter will lay out blessings of salvation that we can experience right this second, so they're available to us and we can grab a hold of them here and now. And then the beauty of Romans 8 is there's also going to be uh, blessings of our salvation that we set our future gaze on, meaning they are the hope that we live in of things still to come that we can anticipate them and we can think about them, but, but they're what we have coming later on down the road. So in a world that is filled with chaos and suffering and pandemics and pandemic outrage and outrage culture and a world where brokenness is just kind of everywhere you look and it's on display on all the things around you. Romans 8 stands as a beacon of hope for us, declaring to our hearts that there's still much to be grateful for. There's still really, really good news. And yes, there's some chaotic stuff out in the world. And when you turn the news on, you go, oh my gosh, what is happening? But the the message that Romans 8 reminds us is All's not lost. God is not dead, and our Savior has still done amazing things. Unimaginable blessings He has brought to us for those who believe and who trust in Him and who follow Him wholeheartedly. And Clayton opened up this chapter for us last week that uh, is a text really that he got to dig into with you uh, that should be one of our favorites if we are believers because it says a profound reality in it that it's hard for us to really wrap our minds all the way around. The breathtaking words in it is that there is now therefore no condemnation. And understanding the, the magnitude of what that means, there's none. There used to be, but now there is no condemnation for those who are 
in Christ. If you're united to Christ, you do not have any condemnation. And the reality of that is this means Christians have been placed beyond the reach of God's condemnation forever. Forever. Christians are those uh, who will never taste the wrath of God. Even if they've done nothing to earn that themselves, they're redeemed, they're forgiven, they are safe. There is no condemnation. This is the declaration there. Christians are those who get to remember that their sins are forgiven. And here's the beauty, that God will never remember your sins. And it's not that he is somehow blissfully unaware. He will not remember them and hold them against you anymore. And that is why there is no condemnation. He has chosen to forget past, present, and future sins through what Christ has done. And and here's the beauty part of that. The way we treat each other isn't quite like this. The beauty of there is now, no, therefore, no condemnation is your sins and your shortfalls are never going to be brought back to be thrown in your face on a bad day. They're gone. They are out of bounds. They will no longer enslave you in fear. So God, on your worst day, won't decide to reinstate wrath for you and be like, yeah, yeah, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to second think all of that through. God, on our worst day, won't decide to decide, you know what, you're really not forgiven. And God, on our worst day, will not kick us out onto the street like orphans. That's why Paul declares with conviction, church, do you understand that? There is now, therefore, no condemnation. It's a, it's a, a charge of celebration. Condemnation is gone. When you follow that trail. If condemnation is gone, that means damnation is off the table. The children of God are not criminals anymore. They are beloved. They are cherished. They will never be crushed. This is where our hearts get to decry uh, hallelujah, which is praise God. Why? Because there used to be condemnation and now there is none. God will not remember my sins. He will not hold them against me. And I would never have to worry about that again. God, through Jesus, has done what the law could not do. That's what Paul had been setting up in chapter 7 all the way to 8. All of this stuff in law was him going, hey, God did what the law could never do. And God, through Christ, has done something that I could not do and you could not do. This message is at the heart of the gospel. And that's important to grasp a hold of because unfortunately many people get confused with what the gospel is. And they'll, they'll throw around terminology quite often. We call it kind of uh, junk drawer terminology where people begin to say things like racial reconciliation is the gospel and social justice is the gospel and serving your city is the gospel and community is the gospel or fighting for the unborn is the gospel. But here's what we need to understand. Absolutely none of those things are the gospel. They can be outworkings and good things that the gospel leads to. But the gospel is the explosive message that because of Jesus, God will save sinners. That you can be saved. That condemnation has, has left you. It is not something that is on the table for you anymore. God will not remember your sins. That is the gospel. It's always involving salvation. And we, we get confused and think the implications of the gospel are the gospel. No, no, no. That's not. The beauty that you've been saved leads us to some other things. Those other things are never the gospel. And Western individualistic minds have problems uh, processing the gospel as well because we are so individualistic and autonomous and we believe that we are a life unto ourselves on an island, that we are, we are so full of what we want to do in our life and our way and it's me that we forget there's a holy God that stands over all things, including our individuality. The, the same God who hung the stars and the heavens, the same God who sent the plagues down on the Egyptians, the same God, and this can make you uncomfortable, who the Bible says over and over will pour out his wrath like a raging fire. 
The same God that no man can stand against no longer stands against us. That's the message of the gospel. This is the grace upon grace. This is the epitome of mercy that we sinners have no beef with a holy God, an all-powerful God we now call Father. He is now our God and we are his people. Condemnation will never will never touch us. Again, that's why he goes, do you get it? There is now, therefore, no condemnation. He's led all the way to that statement of celebration. To go even further, sometimes the hardest person on ourselves uh, are ourselves. Matt Chandler said, nobody is harder on me than I am, and I resonate with that extremely deeply. I am brutal to myself always shaming myself, pouring on feelings of worthlessness or regret or if you'd only done this better or all of those things. See, we are often our our chief condemner in life and Paul is saying to us, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, God no longer condemns you. So you probably don't have to either. It's a statement of we we receive peace. We understand there was a time that there was not peace for you, but now there is. You You don't have to crush yourself. The the perfect Savior stands in your place for all of your imperfections. He doesn't condemn you. You don't need to anymore. That's just the first layer of the beauty of Romans 8, and more is to come. But one of the natural questions, if we'd be honest, Clayton's text last week and mine this week, they really go together, but I don't think you wanted us tag team like a a two or three hour sermon, so we're kind of doing this. But the the question that, that Clayton's text leads into today is, well, how do you know? Okay, that's a great statement, and it sounds wonderful, but where's the proof? How do you know that there's really no condemnation for me? How how do you know that there's no condemnation for you? How can you tell? It's not like you get a a card to carry around that says, like, see, I told you he loves me, and and there's no new tattoo that gets placed on you that says Yahweh's no condemnation anymore. How, How do we have this assurance that there's really no condemnation for us Personally, how do you know? Because it's a beautiful thing to understand and a beautiful thing to behold, but then your heart goes, man, I don't know if you get that, though. How do you know? When you whisper condemnation to yourself, and the enemy always is whispering condemnation, going, that may be that other guy's thing. Like, he probably has no condemnation, but you probably have loads. How do we navigate this? The beauty of the text today is Paul will use this scripture to lay out three signs for us to look for. Three ways. How do you know? He goes, Here, here's three ways that you'll know. We've got a slide for this on the three ways. The three signs. The first one, how do you know there's no condemnation? Because you're led by the Spirit. You're Spirit-led. Drew, will you throw that last slide up for me? Then the, the second way that you know. The first is that you are Spirit-led. The second is that you are adopted. How, how do you know? There's a sense of adoption. The, th- the third way, how do you know that there's no condemnation? Because you are an heir to Christ. Paul, again, is saying, if you want to know if you're in a state of grace, if you want to know if you're a child of God, look at these three areas for the answers, and they're going to give you an answer. And I hope that this section is helpful for you and encouraging to your heart as well, because though biblically faith is uh, putting your, your belief in the things unseen, It doesn't mean that there's no metrics or markers or visible ways to see if we're actually saved. Yes, we believe in a Christ that we cannot physically see walking through the aisles here. And yes, we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus that we didn't witness with our own personal eyes. But that belief still yields and leads to things that can be seen. Are you tracking with that? There are visible signs that after our faith is placed in Christ will be there. And conversely... There are visible signs that no matter what you say or how long you've been in church, if they are not there, you, 
you don't know Jesus. And this is what Paul is trying to say to us. Paul's made it pretty clear as we begin to look into the first sign. He's made it very clear all through Romans that there is a battle raging in every believer. A battle between what he calls the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is the understanding of the old man. The, the body that is ruled by sin, how we come into the world before we are saved. This is the idea of a self-focused, self-centered person who wants to be their own God, do what they want to do. They believe that they have all the answers to all things. They want what they want. They feel that their feelings are all things and what they desire is all things. This is the old man and the old man, the flesh is hostile to God. This belief that we navigate just neutral to God, it's, it's not reality. The, the flesh is hostile to him. It doesn't think it needs God. It doesn't think it needs to obey God. And in fact, the flesh sees God as a barrier to all things good. We'd be so much happier. We'd be so much more enlightened. Culture would be better if you would just get your archaic ways out of our way and let us do what we want. This is the flesh that screams that. While life led by the Spirit. In the text, that's a capital S. So he's saying a life led by the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A life that the Spirit of God is leading is the opposite of a life of the flesh. This life is Christ-focused, not self-focused. It has an eternal perspective, not a, a, a me and right now and what I want in this moment focus. A, a life led by the Spirit seeks to look at Jesus follow Jesus, trust Jesus, obey Jesus. It doesn't just want to glean the blessings of Jesus. It actually wants to follow him. Why? Because it believes that God is not a barrier to the good life, but that following and connection and relational, uh, being okay relationally with God is actually the way that the good life comes to you. There can be a lot of confusion, again, that's worth clarifying. For ages, people have thrown if you notice, we throw words around a lot, genuinely, that we, we may not actually know what they mean. So in saying spirit-led, spirit has been said a ton in the church. And it's thrown around in context all the time. Spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-enabled, spirit-free, spirit-empowered, spirit-quenching, gifts of the spirit, spirit-led worship, spirit-filled preaching. And while those expressions can be helpful and needed at times, we can be like, because right, they're throwing it around so much, like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what you mean. It gets muddy. So if we pair that with how culture speaks of spirit, the way that our culture speaks of spirit is if the spirit is not the third member of the Trinity, but that the spirit is actually you, your will, your heart, your desire, your inner being. And this can make it even more confusing. Like, Paul, what do you mean? Because my Christian brothers have said spirit in some weird ways that I don't understand. They say it all the time. Culture says it as if it's me. How do I decipher, Paul, what, what being spirit-led actually means? How, how do I understand that? So to clarify it, we'll say this. When Jesus talked to his disciples before he went to heaven, he said this. Hey, when I go, I'm going I'm to send my spirit. So after his death and resurrection, he says, I have to go back to the Father, and it's going to be good for you because I'm going to send what he calls a paraclete, the better helper, the better counselor. This is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to guide you, and the Holy Spirit will literally indwell you, and he'll teach us, guide us, correct us, help us see how to live our lives, and the Spirit will also primarily point us to Jesus. So when you have all these spirit-led and spirit, all of these things, the primary job of the spirit is to help guide you and point to Jesus for you. 
So the Bible will tell us uh, the, the statements that, that really made the Pharisees angry at Jesus is Jesus said, if you want to know what the Father looks like, look at me. So looking at Jesus always shows you a picture of the Father. Looking at or hearing the leading of the Holy Spirit always points towards the Son. Spirit-led life is a life that's always pointed at Jesus, and the Spirit helps us lead a life that can see him and follow him. So Paul is showing us one of the ways to see the Spirit working in life is the Spirit of God in a person will help them put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit will help us wage war against, and then hear this, and win in this war against the flesh. This is profoundly good news. Paul has been setting that up all through the beginning of Romans, that we were enslaved to the flesh, and we couldn't even help it. And now all of a sudden, the good news is, is you're not enslaved anymore, and the Spirit will help you battle the flesh. You owe that flesh nothing, and you don't, it's not a foregone conclusion that you're always going to mess up and always going to sin anymore. There can be this idea that we think, you know, woe is me. It's just, I can't help it. And, and the old man and the flesh and the draw of the world and the culture, it's just so strong that I, I can't resist and I can't fight back and I can't see victory. I'm destined to repeat all of these, these same mistakes over and over and over, even after I'm saved, until Jesus returns. It's just, ah, I'm overwhelmed and I can't help it. And Paul's message is none of that is true. If the spirit indwells in you, inside of you, the same spirit that was strong enough to raise Christ from the dead, if that spirit is inside of you, it can help you fight war against your sin and see ground taken. And when we listen to the spirit and look to Jesus, we can expect to gain ground in that war. We can find life. We can taste victory and growth and see all of a sudden over years of time, man, I, God's growing me and he's maturing me. This is sanctification the deeds of the body can be put to death. This is what theologians call the mortification of the flesh or mortification of sin. To put to death or mortify the deeds of the body is, is to engage in ruthless warfare, full-hearted resistance. And the, old, uh, t the, the original language uh, in this idea of putting to death the flesh, this is a picture of violence. What is Paul saying? You do violence to your sin. No quarter. No prisoners. Pull out all the stops. You don't romanticize it. You don't just let it sit there and go, it's not going to be a problem. I got it mastered. To live in the spirit is to fight ruthlessly against the things of the flesh. They will kill me, so I will kill them first. Seeing sins extinguished is what the spirit does. Now, the natural pushback, or are you advocating that Christians will be perfect because of the Spirit? Absolutely not. No. No, on this side of eternity, we will still not be perfect. We're going to struggle at times. But here's the reality. Probably not as much as you give yourself allotment to struggle, though. See, it, it, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be massive, massive, massive areas of growth in your life. It, to be led by the Spirit means entire sin categories that used to, every time, knock you on your face, they cannot now. Can they get you every once in a while? Maybe, but they may never get you again. There can be victory. This is where maybe our grace theology has confused us a little bit, friends. See, grace means you do not have to be perfect to be saved. That's a beauty. The perfect one was sent by the Father for you, so you don't have to be perfect, so you can exhale. This comforts you in knowing, okay, I don't have to meet this bar to be saved, but then it also comforts you in the event that you mess up. Why? Well, you didn't mess up the perfection that you needed for God to love you, so you're still in. But 
Grace was never meant to make you and me think that real progress wasn't possible, needed, or expected. Again, what's the call? Go to church and tell everyone you're saved or no one? Or is the call to follow Jesus? In this continual pursuit of following, the one you follow begins to rub off on you and you begin to look like him and submit to him and know him. So what's the first sign that you're no longer under condemnation when we go, how do you know? Well, you see the Spirit helping you take ground away from the flesh. And we can see that, that there may be times that this happens massively and quickly for someone. And maybe it's just, you look at a five-year period and be like, dude, I don't struggle with that anymore. What? Like, it, the, the time frames can be different, but you see the Spirit helping you take ground back from the flesh in the all-out war. What does this mean? It means the power of Jesus is freeing you from the power of sin, and you find peace in it. To understand the gospel more fully, we have to understand the gospel is all about salvation. But salvation isn't just what you're saved from. It's not just the penalty of sin is taken away. It's also that the the power of sin is starting to be weeded out of your life. This is what the Spirit helps you do. Christians begin to look more like the Savior that they follow, and that means that the family likeness begins to show itself in your life. Right? If we've known someone closely for years, like closely, and then they find out we're a Christian, they're like, dude, I would have never guessed. Oh, Okay. The Savior that we follow should begin to be evident in some ways. Right? Everyone in the world doesn't have to know that you're a Christian, but some, if some of your closest friends see nothing different in your life than theirs, and I, I'd, I'd bring up some very real questions of whether the Spirit is leading you or not. The Spirit helps us take ground back from the flesh. Hypergrace theology says the flesh doesn't matter, just have fun. That, that's not what Paul is advocating. Verses 14 through 16, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul lays out the second sign of whether we're under condemnation, uh, adoption. And he kind of lays it out backwards and forwards. In verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And we'll tackle this. Men and women can both be this kind of sons here. And then in verse 16, he says those led by the Spirit are children of God. I struggle with the way that sometimes my heart doesn't feel the weight of a sentence. If you are saved and the Holy Spirit leads you, You've been adopted. The original language says you've been sunized. That status isn't always yours. It hasn't always been yours. You have been given something that you did not have before, and it is now yours. You were not a son, and now in Christ you are. To clarify what this teaching means here, we've got to do a little work. It's common to hear people say, well, all human beings are God's children. We're all sons and daughters of God. Since he created all things, and well, then we're all automatically his children because we came from him. If he created all and we're children, 
you'll come from him. And, and a lot of this is taken from a misunderstanding of Acts 17. Acts 17 says that human beings are God's offspring. The word offspring is descendant, not son. Right, so imagine if you go do one of those 23andMe or whatever they're called, DNA tests, and figure out where your family comes from, and all of a sudden you figure out like 20 generations ago they were here and all this stuff. You're a descendant of those people. You're not their son. You don't know them. There's literally no connection. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're their descendant. You're definitely not their son. This is what he's talking about. Descendants and sons are not the same thing. Yes, in the sense of God being the creator, we are all his descendants. We are not all his sons, though. It's false to say that all humanity are his children, that everyone gets this blessing. It's not true. The only ones who are adopted into his family are believers, the ones who receive Jesus. Jesus, this this is what ticked the Pharisees off. The only way to the Father is through me. It's only the ones who know Jesus that are adopted into the family of of God. And through this adoption, we receive unimaginable blessings. And just even if that tension, right, that, that idea that, hey, this, this isn't for everyone. Everyone isn't automatically a son. Even our hearts go, people won't like that. It's true. They won't. But still doesn't mean it's not a blessing that you have if you're in Christ. Let your heart hear it. If you are in Christ, a follower, God, the Father, the Father of all creation, the God of the universe is your Father. Maybe you're like, man, I had a terrible father. He's not that guy. He's your father. He's adopted you personally. He is yours. You are his. Never shall the adoption be undone. The family will never dissolve. Some points to keep in mind to make adoption, maybe land a little bit sweeter and make a little bit more sense. Adoption here, this is a legal term. And Paul's making it really clear Adoption is a legal act of the father to bring you into his family. Legal act, binding, by the father to bring you in. You don't win a father. Right? You don't negotiate for a parent. You don't interview fathers. No, adoption is a legal act of the father towards you. It's very costly for him. It's initiated by him. He pays the price for it. Adopted kids don't choose their father. The father grabs a hold of and adopts them out of love. This means that adoption is a gift. Every time you try and earn it, you're stealing from yourself the beauty of how much God loves you. It's a mercy given to you that you did nothing for. God brings former slaves of sin into his family and he calls them sons. Imagine bringing your enemy into the house, preparing a room for them and saying, you'll have a seat at the table forever with me. I love you. This is what the father does. You are a son now. Now, what does sonship bring blessing-wise? What does it mean tangibly? Well, sons have security in their adopted status. We aren't hired hands or slaves. Remember, he's speaking to Roman culture, which you would have had servants and hired hands and slaves and all of these things, and he's differentiating. Your status is not the same as theirs. When you accept the reality of your adoption, you know that you are safe. Sons do not have to always fight to keep the the, the child-parent relationship intact. To receive the spirit of adoption is to understand that you don't need to fear losing your family anymore because you know God is your father and that will not change. Then sons have authority. In Roman culture, to be adopted by someone... um, 
is to receive the authority of the Father and their name and all of the power that comes behind it. Remember, this is a, a patriarchy and a society where, where to, to, to be uh, the, the, the Father that, that has all things, there's a whole lineage that you get all these blessings behind it. When you're adopted, the authority of the Father and all the things that they've done and all the things that they have earned, they become the authority that you live in. Your former debts are paid. Your old status is gone. You're not who you used to be. You're your father's now. You're in that family. His name becomes yours. You're no longer on the outside looking in. And you may ask, well, how, how, do I, how do I? Okay, great. But what does that authority look like in the here and now? Well, it looks like the ability to fight sin and the flesh. The authority, the authority to receive victory over what once imprisoned you. It is the authority to come before the Father and even pray, which in the Old Testament, if you read, you could not do that there. And it's the authority that you know that you have an inheritance waiting for you. And here's the huge one. Sons have intimacy with their father now. Dudes don't have a problem with that. The text says, through the spirit of adoption as sons, we cry out, Abba, Father. This word Abba in the Aramaic, is, it can be best translated as how a small child calls their father daddy. It's deeply intimate. It's not rigid. It's not cold or by, distant by any means. We address the God of the universe as daddy, Papa, our father. The one that we trust, the one that we're going to draw near to. We cry out, you are my father. Paul's words are precise here. When you cry out, it's like crying out like a young father. Have you ever, or like a young child, have you ever seen a young child who hasn't seen their dad in a little bit run into a room? They drop what's in their hands. They do not care about anything else going on and they yell out, daddy, right? Father, my father. They yell out, this is what the spirit does in those who are adopted. It's a deep emotional connection of trust and closeness. Now this marks a massive change. God no longer is distant to us. He's no longer merely a God that we know intellectually or, or theologically. Instead, he is our father who loves us and cares for us and is near to us. Rigid faith can, can look like a faith that doesn't, do, do, that doesn't cry out daddy. It's just, it's just systematic. It's not felt. It's not emotional or spontaneous where a child finds themselves at times just dropping everything. Forget the procedure. Drop it all. Daddy. Daddy, running at the father, sprinting to him, knowing that he'll have open arms and not cast you away. Not say, I don't have time for you. Get away. Come on. He's not like any of us as fathers. He's the father that receives the, the, the daddy father with open arms and, and, and says, come and draw near. Now, this intimacy is where worship and prayer can take root in a life. How do you worship a God that you don't feel close to? How do you worship a God that you don't feel connected to? Well, I think it looks a whole lot like this. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. That, that's actually called bartering, not worship. How do you pray to a God where you don't know where you stand with him? How do you navigate that? How do you bring the requests of your heart if you don't know if they're going to hold the request of your heart against you? See, it is our adoption and realizing where we stand with God, that he is our father, he's our daddy, that can drive us forward in worship and prayer to deeper levels than we've probably experienced before. Why? Because you no longer have to navigate or strafe around God wondering how he's going to relate to you or what he's going to do to you. Because there's now no condemnation 
we're now embraced by God. The spirit of God changes everything when we accept it to be adopted, to be able to draw near and consider him our father, my father who loves me and trusts me and always has times for me is a massive, massive change. I challenge you in this. Most directly to, to men because it's who I see it through the most. If corporate worship and song has been what you've considered not your thing, it's, it's just not my jam. It's just not my thing. Might it be because you don't see yourself as a son that it's not your thing? Worship is not a personality type. Lifting your hands is not an extrovert or emotional thing. Those are expressions of children crying out to their father. Those are expressions of intimacy from beloved, adopted, safe-filling children who say, I don't care about coming off weird or undignified. I don't care what's going on. I just want to connect and need to draw near to my father. I don't care what you guys need. I just got to run to my daddy. Man, I, I can't help but think that it's a matter of not seeing yourself in that type of relationship that holds the heart back. So no matter how stoic you appear, something in your heart that wants to connect to your dad, all of us have it. If you hear that and think, well, man, that sounds kind of manipulative and forced. I'll challenge you first. Well, one, God demands to be worshiped in that way. There's a modern idea that we dictate how we worship and we go to churches that worship the way that we want or the way we feel Let's backtrack. God tells us how to worship. And in a corporate setting here, it involves singing, like actually singing, even if you have a terrible voice like me, singing, the raising of hands, corporate prayers. Sometimes you bow down on your knees. God says, this is how you worship me. So it feels like, hey man, you're just trying to force that on me. I'm just telling you what God said already. And the second thing is maybe you don't feel close to him as your father today because you won't humble yourself to act like a son. See, the blessings is letting the heart go, no, I believe that you're my father and I'll lean into it. Run to the father and see if he won't reach his hands out to you and embrace you and love you and be kind to you. There's a humbling that has to happen in our hearts to say, I'll chase you even if other people don't dig it. What do we see in the Old Testament out of David? A man after my own heart. David danced before God, worshiped God, raised his hands to God. He knew the power of God's love. Did he do awful things as well? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he did really bad. But he also understand the heart of worship to a God that he considered himself close to. We have to remember this, too. Jesus says it's the heart of the child that sees the kingdom of God. These words we have to wrap our mind around, without the faith of a child, you'll, you'll never know me. A childlike faith that isn't too dignified to cry daddy is a beautiful thing. Why? Because it experiences the beauty of being adopted. Again, I'm not trying to ask for a ton of emotional things from you. I'm just trying to ask maybe, just maybe, the, the arms cross silence thing isn't doing super good stuff to your heart to understand you have a dad that loves you. 
17 and 18, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, the last sign uh, that we'll, we're only going to be able to dig into a very small frontside portion of this today is that we are heirs with Christ. We're joint heirs with Christ, Paul would say. And the beauty of that is we have an inheritance that's being stored up in heaven for us. There's a side of our inheritance that we will not fully see until glory comes, but there's beautiful things coming. But the more difficult part of being heirs with Christ in the here and now means in the here and now we participate with the sufferings. There's a future side that we'll see where there'll be no suffering, but to be an heir now there will be. Christians will suffer. Not simply the pains of the world that all people face, but specifically Christians will suffer because they are brothers and sisters of Christ themselves. Christ faced rejection because of who he was, of what he said, how he lived. Just the way he lived angered people. And because he came to expose the sinfulness of the world and offer salvation to a world that, that desperately needed it, it brought even more to him. Likewise, as his family, if the Spirit is leading us and fighting the flesh, and we're standing in opposition to the ways of the world, we're going to end up suffering sometimes too. So we speak of him, if we obey him in the middle of a world set against him, it's going to cause some problems. Man, I get it. Yes, this is hard to hear. Like, it's supposed to be Mother's Day, man. I know. Here's the beauty. Is suffering hard? Yeah. Well, what is one of the front side, Paul, one of the front side things Paul wants to tell you about? Why are you suffering? Because the world sees Christ in you. The beauty of that is you get to be like Jesus. Not, not heretically, you ain't Jesus. The family likeness begins to show itself in your life. The way of the sun begins to be the way that you walk. You. Look at your life over the last five or ten years. That same person is becoming more like him. And in that, God will work in us and through us if we will just follow Christ. Again, this is going to create tension points in the world sometimes. As we bear the family likeness, it will cause us to suffer as it stands in opposition to the way of the world. Right? Look around you right now. Just living in a way that does not validate all the things that other people do is not, is not super cherished right at this moment. This is why the Bible tells us to see ourselves as aliens and outsiders. It's saying, be careful, don't don't get too at home there. The way that you live, the way that you see the world is going to look differently. So there's going to be a part of Christians that feel like you're just always paddling like, against the current. It's just like always against it. And even your minds are like, man, I just wish I could turn the other way and just like get a break for a bit. You're always going against the current because the way that you see the world and live in the world is foreign to the way the world wants to be. So what happens? You're going to be looked at if you follow Christ as if you're crazy. To just hold to basic orthodoxy, you'll, you'll be thought of as hateful. 
ignorant, gullible, and even worse. And Paul says when you hit this type of tension or suffering in your life, he says, believer, son of God, don't worry. Because the current sufferings won't be worth comparing to what you'll see one day. The future glory that you have coming. And notice he doesn't just say, hey, get over it, it's not that bad. I think he's connecting with us going, it's real bad. It's not going to hold a candle to what you'll see one day, though. It'll be worth it. Don't give up. This brings into my mind as I, as I kind of prep the sermon, the parable of the seed and the sower. There's different seeds that go into different soils, and one of them, you see it, it sprouts up quickly, and it looks great. All of a sudden, the seed, it sprouts up, and it looks like quick, and going, and then all of a sudden, it says the, the thorns and the thistles. Like the, the, the tension of the world, it just it crushes the gospel in that heart. Paul's telling you, hey, when, when, the, when the thorns and the thistles, when the tension, when the suffering comes your way, do not run away, fall down, or cower in fear when suffering comes. Point your face toward the headwind and keep walking with the Spirit. I know that's probably not a super encouraging. How do you know if you're not in condemnation? If you suffer. And again, it's not suffering because you did something dumb. It's suffering because the sun and his ways begin to show itself in your life. And the world just doesn't love it. A note that I mentioned just a second ago, Paul mentioned sonship over and over and over again. And yes, this is a term that applies the male gender. But Paul is clear that sonship is a facet of adoption available to men and women. See, in Roman culture, only males were sons and could be adopted. But in God's family, men and women both are. They both receive the benefits of adoption, not just one, and so this term conveys the benefits of adoption, not the gender. And this shouldn't be weird to us and, and all believers, because all believers are called the bride of Christ. So yes, sons can be male and female in this extent, but also to be the bride of Christ, and both in that sense as well, males and females are the bride. This is passing on the understanding of what it means to be in the family of God and the blessings of salvation and adoption are, and sonship are available to all who believe, male, female, young boy, young girl, all who believe have that available to them. Again, we, we don't have time to chase the rabbit hole, but there's this belief that God and the Bible is anti-woman. Well, Paul just went to great lengths to show you that the blessings of God are open to both and not just one. Where Romans would say, no, you don't have value and you can't have this and you can't be a son and you can't have the lineage and you can't have any of that. Paul's going, the blessing in the name of the Father can be yours, male or female. He is showing that God is incredibly pro-woman in here. Again, I'm not going to chase that too long, but it's a weird thing when you read the Bible when people say that God is against females, when he opens up the blessings wide to all. So we'll circle back. How do you know that there's no condemnation for you any longer? There is now, therefore, no condemnation well, because the Spirit is raging war against the flesh with you as you live. Old habits and sins and pursuits that you're born with are just changing. The person who is living now isn't the person who is living before, and the Spirit is hoping you. You're taking back ground, not out of your own will or your own ability, but the Spirit with you pointing to Jesus, and Jesus eclipsing your old desires and your old ways are literally putting to death things of the flesh. How do you know the Spirit is fighting with you against the flesh? Second one, how do you know that there is no condemnation because you see God as your father, that you feel close to, who you love and know loves you back. He is no longer a distant deity 
who you hope doesn't kill you, but he's a close daddy who loves you. Now, to be fair in this, the the way that we experience this ebbs and flows. We have all moments that you're, you're going to do that like, Daddy, and Ron, like, no, no, no. But, but there are moments that you will feel the gap closed and that God is your Father who loves you very much. When all things pour condemnation on you and you feel distant, there's still something in your heart that goes, he's my Father, and he loves me, and I can trust him, and I can run to him, and he'll receive me at any point. You won't always have mountain-high experiences there, but you will feel that. And the third, how do you know that there is no condemnation? The family likeness is going to walk you into stuff that you would rather have not walked into. There will be suffering. You feel the weirdness of operating in a way that, for, that is foreign to the world, and it's going to hurt. You will lose real relationships when you follow Christ. People will say terrible things. They will do terrible things. Will all do that? No, thank God. Some will, though. But the reality is we need to refuse to stop when that happens. Paul just points out here's three ways. Spirit-led. You feel a sense of adoption. It can move around a little bit. And sometimes following Jesus bravely causes you to walk into some suffering. If you're here in a believer and and you say, man, I, I mean, I see some of those at some level in my life. It's quantifiable proof that you're saved and you're his. The Spirit has done all of those things in you. And Paul's just telling you, hey, Remember this, God's never going to remember your sins. No, that's not a free pass. Settle down. God's God's not going to remember your sins. He loves you and he cares for you. You're free from condemnation and free in Christ. Walk out in the beauty of the grace of what God has given you. Here's proof. When our heart always goes, how do you know? Hey, that's how you know. If you thought, you know, I'm a believer and you thought you've been a believer forever and then you go, man, I've never experienced any of those. Not really seeing sin patterns change or the Spirit help you fight back. And you, you've never really felt like God was close to you or that you could relate to him like Father. And you feel the same as the world. It's never really like maybe you've lost out on Sunday fun day, but never really hit suffering. I think Paul is just kindly warning you here. Maybe your relationship with God is more religious and surface than actual then. And I think in that there's an invitation. If you sense that, there's an invitation, hey, you can turn to him with your whole heart today, though. Maybe you didn't really know that there was no condemnation before, but maybe God is calling you to not navigate around him, but trust and submit to him today. Paul's going, hey, if none of those are there, not trying to destroy you, just trying to invite you in. And if that's you, there's no shame in that. If you know my story, I came to faith late in life. I worked at a church. I'm like, oh, wow. Didn't know him. No shame in that. But if you begin to sense that, man, I don't have any of those markers. And maybe God is drawing you. I would just say, hey, don't walk away ignoring that. That's the heart of God drawing you in adoption, saying, hey, I love you. Come, come to me. I want you to know that I am your daddy. And if that's you, man, just pray to him today. I'd, I'd be happy to pray with you afterwards. Come talk to me, or you can do it yourself. God, I think I've tried to navigate around you rather than actually knowing you. Forgive me, help me. I I need you. Adopt me into your family, and he'll be just and kind to do so. We're standing here, and none of that makes sense, and you wouldn't consider yourself a believer. I just remind you that the gospel is that God has sent Jesus to do what you and I could not, to save us from the problem of our sin, which all of us are born into, 
And the beauty of that is God has made the plan and Jesus has done the work. You don't have to know more, figure out more, or be better. You just have to submit to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. I cannot save myself. Will you save me? And can I follow you? And, and he will. And I just wanted to invite you into that as well. I'd, I'd be happy to pray for you if that's you or where you stand today. We're going to take communion today, man. You guys can come back up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord, Way I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, when we take today, here's the beauty of this we're reminding ourselves that there is no condemnation. Why? Because the body of Jesus was broken for you and the blood of Jesus was shed for you. That's the only reason that there is no condemnation. So when you take, you don't have to be a member to take. There's communion uh, little cups at the front table. Uh, maybe someday we'll get away from the, 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 the cups, but here's the beauty. You're reminding yourself there's no condemnation. He has done it all. He's fixed it all. He has paid for it all. And you're slowly reminding your heart in the face of all the things out there, in the face of the headwind against a world that is vastly different than Jesus, you're imagining there's still a sacrifice. In the face of suffering, of difficulty, of, of self-doubt, of condemnation, you're understanding Jesus paid it all and there is no condemnation. So my hope is that your heart would be just built up in that. Would you be encouraged how much he loves you? I pray that you would see him more as a good father as you take today. Again, you don't need to be a member to take, but I hope that your heart is encouraged. You can take it any time while we close in uh, the last couple songs today. Will you stand and pray with me?